Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, December 29th. We begin with a look back at the year that was surrounding politics in Alberta and across the nation. We catch up with Dwayne Bratt, political scientist with Mount Royal University. Then we explore the controversial topic of vaccine passports. We speak with a professor of philosophy on why he thinks it may be a good idea to issue a document to those individuals who receive a COVID-19 vaccine when the time comes. Next, we look at the devastating impact the pandemic has had on jobs in our nation. We get the results of a new poll from Ipsos. And finally, setting real and attainable fitness goals for 2021. We get some tips from a Calgary personal fitness trainer. 812 on the morning news, and it has been a tumultuous year in Alberta as uh, COVID-19 continues to rage on. We'll take a look back right now at 2020 and its biggest political moments with Dwayne Bratt, political scientist at Mount Royal University. Good morning to you, Dwayne. Good morning, Andrew. Let me just start by saying whether it's, uh, well, maybe even civically, but, but uh, provincially for sure and nationally, I would not want to be a politician in 2020. Can you agree with that statement? I would agree with that, and you might want to extend that to 2021. Oh, that's a good point. We're not going to just flip the calendar and everything is going to change. So I'm wondering, obviously, I think the elephant in the room, COVID-19, the biggest political issue when when news and and actually health and international events, you know, eclipse everything. Uh, That's the biggest takeaway for 2020 in the province? Oh, without a doubt. Everything rolls around that, not just in Alberta, but across Canada, across the world. Almost every aspect, whether you talk about the budget, whether you talk about uh, the education system, whether you talk about party politics, whether you talk about uh, non-COVID health care, whether you talk about culture, whether you talk about sports, everything is about COVID. And the organic nature, uh, you know, coming from pollsters when it comes to our leaders, for example, beginning of the pandemic, if you were to look at somebody like, for, for example, Ontario Premier Doug Ford's numbers to just a couple months in, how his numbers had changed and, and maybe something similar as you move west, but on a, on a different side of things and, and on a decline. Yeah, that's been the, the remarkable thing is Jason Kenney's popularity never received a what we call a COVID bump. This is even when Alberta was handling the pandemic very well, I thought, and the numbers show it back in the spring. Under the first wave, it was Ontario that was hit hardest, Quebec was hit hardest. Alberta seemed to be handling things quite well. We Mm. were, in fact, uh, sending personal protective equipment that we had been able to stockpile to to other provinces. And yet Jason Kenney never got that that boost in, in approval rating that a Trudeau did, that a Horgan did, that a Doug Ford did. And then when things cratered, as they have in fall, um, you know, we had over 500 deaths just this month alone in, in December. Uh, almost half of uh, all COVID deaths occurred in one month. Um, then the numbers got even worse uh, for, for the premier. But even so, I mean, it's just it's such a different time. And even so, like budgets to a certain extent, uh, not government's getting a pass, but I think we all expect uh, when it comes to the finances of every province and, and our nation, for that matter, to take a real hit. And I think that Canadians are on board with that and Albertans, for that matter. Not that these governments can get away with anything, but the budgets are seem to be moving to the back burner. Well, and, and that's why I say I wouldn't want to be a politician in 2021 either, because that is assuming the, the vaccination rollout continues, uh, these case numbers draw, start to decline, the, the death tolls and the hospitalizations start to decline, then we need to start thinking about some of these budget issues. Um, and in Alberta, 
yeah, they did ramp up uh, government spending, something that I don't think ideologically uh, Jason Kenney wanted to do. But let's bear in mind, the deficit was quite high pre, pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. They released a budget uh, in late February. They rushed the budget through. It, this was pre-COVID, and it showed you know uh, an $8 billion deficit. And then when uh, we got a fiscal update, by the end of March, it was even higher. So we were not in a good economic situation pre, pre-COVID, and that just magnified it. And, and more and more, you know, we hear detractors of, of Jason Kenney and company saying, you know, he's trying to keep his base happy. Why isn't he concerned about the health of Albertans? And, you know, and all he cares about is business or, you know, he should care more about business, if you will. I, I would think that we have Jason Kenney in that seat, but insert any politician in that seat during this time. It's, it's kind of a no-win situation, isn't it? Uh, it is in a no-win situation. Uh, I think a, another government, a non-conservative government, a non-ideologically driven conservative government might have done things uh, quite differently, uh, at least in the timing. And so the restrictions that came into place in early December, I think, made made total sense to me. Um, but they should have been done a month earlier. And I think that that's where the gap lies. Uh, it's also some of the, the communication stuff. So, yes, dealing with the pandemic... A lot of governments would have done some stuff similarly. But would they also simultaneously have been going after health care workers, uh, rural doctors, uh, nurses, uh, announcing outsourcing uh, of lab technicians and mm-hmm. laundry workers and, and all of that in the midst of the pandemic, which is exactly what occurred? I'm not sure other governments would have done that. And that is why Kenny <clears throat> has taken the personal hit that he has. Well, and it's easy to say if or what, but yeah, he's the yeah. guy in the hot seat as we speak. I uh, wish we had more time with you. Thanks for your time this morning, Dwayne. Okay, you're welcome, Andrew. As Dwayne Bratt, political scientist from Mount Royal University. 9-10 on the morning news. It's a controversial idea that has many people talking. Could Canada implement a COVID-19 immunity passport? We're joined now by Andrew Bailey, a professor of philosophy and the associate dean of research at the University of Guelph. With more details on why this could be a good idea. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning, Andrew. Nice to speak with you. Nice to speak with you as well. So um, here's your chance, and I'll, I'm going to kick it off here with a, a text, if that's all right with you. Uh, we Absolutely. had this text come in when I teased that this segment would be ahead. It says, no to an immunity passport. They say we don't have to have a mandatory vaccine, and yet it could be forced on us by a ridiculous passport. We are losing our rights in this country. So this person against it, why are you for it or why do you think this could be a good idea? Well, I, I think that um, the, the person who sex makes a good point, but I think that what's going to happen is that inevitably we're going to start treating people differently who have received a vaccine or who, who are otherwise immune versus people who aren't. So I think that people who, who think of themselves are, are, as immune are going to want to start behaving differently. They're going to start chafing against the, the various different public health restrictions that the rest of us are facing. And I think that um, the broader society as well is going to want to treat those people differently. So uh, movie theatres, airlines, employers are going to want to uh, treat people who, who receive the vaccine or who've recovered from the disease uh, differently than they treat their other customers or employees. And we need to be ready for that. We need to, to do that thoughtfully rather than the way that, that is arbitrary and unfair. Okay, well, let's uh, break this down because I know that the vaccine rollout uh, just really in its infancy in our nation. So the reality of having, you know, a number of people immune, um, 
a significant amount is, is going to take some time. So I'm wondering if, if there could be legal challenges uh, for people who say, you know, I, I shouldn't have to have a passport. I shouldn't have to make a decision to put a vaccine in my body in order to go to work. Could you foresee there be some legal challenges surrounding something like this notion? I could. Right. So, I mean, one one option would be that we could, I guess, as a society, decide that we don't want to, to treat people differently who've been vaccinated, right? So that we don't want to um, give them access to, to workspaces that other people don't have, for example, or let them dine out or travel when other people can't. So that would be one option. Um, but that would be arguably even more controversial than than um, starting to lift the restrictions on people for whom the restrictions could be lifted. And I agree that, that we're, we're very much in the early stages of vaccine rollout, but now's the time to be thinking about it because we need to decide what kind of uh, benefits and responsibilities those who are vaccinated might have, and also how we're going to implement that. How, would, for example, are we going to develop an app that people will be able to use to show that they've been vaccinated? How are we going to confirm people's identity? These are all things we should be thinking about now rather than later. And I want to I want to clear something up because we've got a new, a new another text in here, Professor Bailey. And again, we're speaking with Professor Andrew Bailey, uh, professor of philosophy at University of Guelph. This uh, texter says. Hey, Andrew. I think they're referring to me. My name's Andrew as well. If you're going to get a professional that speaks about a pro-vaccine passport, why don't you get another professional that speaks about why we shouldn't have to get a vaccine passport? This isn't necessarily that you're rah-rah pro for this, but you're talking about the concept and why it might be a solution. Is that right? That is right. I mean, basically, my, my uh, fundamental position is that... Um, that uh, we're going to have for uh, you know the, the short-term foreseeable future, we're going to have two different um, classes of people in society anyway. Right? I think that's just going to happen. And what I'm suggesting is that um, we need to think about how we're going to handle that. Um, and that that, you know, um, although it's controversial, it's inevitable. And uh, I'm proposing that, that uh, some sort of certification is the bedrock of, of um, understanding how those people will be treated differently. Do we know if, if anything like this is, is in, in the works or being planned in other nations, or is you know, your candidate at the forefront of, of this idea? Uh, it's, so it, um, in the spring, this idea came out um, in the context of people who, who recovered from um, COVID. Um, and the, you know, because the, the economic impact was becoming plain, there was a lot of uh, attractiveness to the idea of letting some of the, the workforce get back to work. And at that time, it was so controversial that essentially no Western government acted on it. But now in the context of vaccines, I think um, it's more attractive. So you certainly are seeing um, uh, governments uh, considering the idea seriously again. So I think it's being considered seriously in the UK. It's being considered seriously in Germany. Um, Estonia is introducing an electronic um, sort of vaccine certification. So I think it is, it is being thought about around the world. Do you think that uh, to a certain extent, the things that we've gone without during the pandemic, uh, kind of comparing them to the, the carrot dangling in front, such as ease of travel, will uh, be a, a real appeal for the majority of the population? I, I do. And I think one of the, I mean, it's a very complex question. There's a lot of factors to consider, but one of them would be um, making vaccination attractive. I think people quite reasonably think that once they've been vaccinated, um, they will see some benefit from that, right? They will, in fact, be immune, so therefore they should be allowed to behave in behaviors that would otherwise be risky, right? I think that's how people are going to think. So um, if we count down on that, that might disincentivize people to, to get the vaccine, and that would be a serious public health problem.
Would this have to be, and I know, for example, with, with, with children, um, you have to have a passport for, for infants. Would this be something that would span all ages in society, or would it be more so for adults in, in the working world, do you think? I think that is a, is a, it's a good question. And so I, um, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, I guess I think that um, uh, it probably should span all ages because I think, for example, this is something that will be relevant to schools and universities, right? So whether or not or, or how children are educated, whether, whether they're in groups in classrooms, for example, might depend on, on whether or not they've either been vaccinated or recovered from the disease. This one texter says, not sure what the point is. People vaccinated can still carry and spread the disease. Is that correct? Although what we're focusing on is uh, immunity, right? And there's the, the testing involved. Yeah, that's right. But that, that, that is a very good point, that it, it's currently not clear that people who are vaccinated, uh, it, it seems to be fairly clear that they are themselves immune, but it's less clear that they're not infectious to others. So that, I think, would, would, should shape how we um, control the kind of um, new behaviours that people who are vaccinated are allowed to, to participate in. So maybe they can commute to work, maybe they could go out to dinner, but they would still have to wear masks and physically distance, for example. Absolutely. Well, thank you uh, for for your time and uh, for your ideas and uh, bringing this topic forward. My pleasure. That is Andrew Bailey, a professor of philosophy and associate dean of research at the University of Guelph. 709 on the morning news. Canadians have been tightening their belts as the pandemic continues to change how and if Canadians can work at all. We're joined now by CEO of Public Affairs with Ipsos, Daryl Bricker, to break down the latest numbers on how COVID has impacted Canada's job market. Uh, good morning to you, Daryl. Uh, good morning. Let's uh, look at these numbers, and uh, they, they're fairly large. I would like to, uh, uh, I would wish they were different, but not the case. The fact of the matter is, this has had a major impact on our jobs. What's the biggest number that stuck out on you? Uh, stuck out to you, Daryl? Well, about three million Canadians. About nine percent of people say that they've lost their job this year. And wow. Statistics Canada just released their uh, unemployment numbers, and they had eight and a half percent. So, pretty close to actually what we have. So, yeah, a big number of people saying they've lost their jobs, but also an equal number saying that they've found jobs. So what we're seeing is a fair amount of churning in the labor market. The biggest thing that we're seeing, though, is that uh, um, younger people and women, and particularly younger women, are the ones who are being most affected by this. So what's the age group when you say younger women that are seeing this impact? Below the age of 34. Uh, and, uh, and so these are people who, in some instances, are, an awful lot of them are working part-time mm-hmm. and have maybe uh, what I would call more precarious relationships with the, uh, with the, uh, with the job environment, and they're the ones who are, seem to be suffering the most. In fact, their unemployment rate's about twice what we're seeing it for the general population. So part-timers perhaps getting the axe first, or maybe even those with less seniority, I guess you'd think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you walk down the streets of Calgary right now and you take a look at the restaurants and how many of them are shut down and you remember the last time that you went out for for dinner or lunch there uh, and and you take a look at the people who would have been working there, those are the people who are being most affected. We talk about, you know, the job loss and not sure whether or not this is attributed to the job loss or people just being super cautious. Uh, Some pretty big numbers as far as the polling is concerned uh, with people cutting back on spending. 
Yeah, and disproportionately in Alberta. We're finding it highest in Alberta, I think maybe because they got an earlier start. Interestingly, uh, we're not seeing that Alberta job numbers have particularly jumped off during the course of this year in terms of a decline, and that's maybe because they were already down when we went into this. But certainly that attitude about uh, cutting back on particularly non-essential spending is higher in Alberta than we see anywhere else in the country. You know, to, to save money in the household is one thing, but that has an impact on the economy as well. Yeah, it certainly does. And where you see people cutting back uh, on <laughs> is not necessarily them saying, well, I don't want this. It's yeah. A lot of stuff isn't available. So yeah. discretionary spending on eating out, going to the movies, doing all those things, you can't do it. So as a result, people are cutting back. And one of the interesting things we're seeing, Andrew, is that, is that people are saying that their credit card debt is down as a result. Oh, you got to look. You got to look at a silver lining, but that would be the case. And, and to that uh, point, when you say some things aren't available, uh, that would include uh, the a major uh, ticket item for for many Canadians, which would be travel, getting away on that holiday destination. Not going to happen this year. Yeah, and that's where people are, are actually introducing some saving. The other thing that we're seeing, though, is that they're saying that their grocery spending has gone up, and for obvious reasons, they can't eat out, they're eating at home, uh, but also they're worried about the cost of groceries. So that's going to potentially be an interesting issue as we go into the new year. What is the cost of, uh, of, of the weekly grocery bill? And that's up from last year? the Because uh, I know the, the groceries have been um, you know, a bone of contention for Canadians for, for quite some time. Yeah, it's up 5%. 5% from from the previous year. Let's talk about the, the organics of, of this year in the sense that if you were to do this poll, like I would say, you know, June or July compared to in December, it would be a world difference, wouldn't it? Uh, well, we didn't do it. Uh, we, we did it sort of year over year. But, okay. uh, yeah, I think as we were going into the summer, there was a bit of a feeling that we were coming out of this uh, and we're seeing optimism starting to improve. We've seen it just start to tail back down again as we've gone back and have gone back into lockdowns. And people do feel that uh, with the vaccines, though, that there might be a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. But all we're seeing is a glimmer. In fact, half the people that we interviewed said, we don't think we're going to be out of this till maybe even the, the end of next year. So uh, people are being cautious. Uh, they're cutting back on certain things, some of it because they're being forced to do it, but also they are worried about uh, their precarious relationship to the job environment and whether or not they'll be able to afford to get through this. No, absolutely. Let's talk about the parameters of this poll. How many Canadians were polled this time out, Daryl? A thousand of your neighbors. One thousand. And the process, and I always enjoy every, every few months breaking down the process. Is this something that I get a phone call or I, I do online if Ipsos is contacting me? Yeah, we do it online now. So it's a combination of, of, of people that have said that they want to do research with us, and we go to them. But we also intercept people online and, uh, and offer them an opportunity to participate in the survey. And all, by the way, almost all research that gets done in Canada now is done that way. Now, this is, I'm, I'm not sure if I'll have the chance to speak with you again uh, this week, so it might be we don't talk until next year. I love saying that. Uh, <laughs> but we've been focusing a little bit, as media outlets do this time of the year, on New Year's resolutions. So I'm wondering personally, uh, is this something you regularly do? Do you, do you set a New Year's resolution, and will you be doing it during this odd year as we say goodbye to 2020 into 2021? You know, I don't normally, but now that you've asked me, <laughs> maybe, maybe I should be thinking about it. Well, I always like to write, so maybe I need to do a little bit more writing. I had a couple of, you know, a new book come out this in, in March called Next, which um, is all about what's going to be happening after COVID and how Canada is changing. And I'm, think, I'm searching around for another topic in my mind. So I think this year I have to come up with a new topic and get started on a new book.
Okay, well, you know, here's your chance to plug too, Daryl. Uh, where can we pick up this book? Can we get it online? Oh, yeah, anywhere. It's it's you know on Amazon. It's published by HarperCollins, so it's a it's a big publisher. So you go to any bookstore, you go online anywhere, and you'll you'll see it. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting take on how the country has been changing, what we don't know about what the country, how the composition of the country, mm-hmm. and where we're likely to go, particularly over the next twenty years. We're gonna have to add author to your introduction next time, Daryl. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me on. 610 on the morning news. Fitting realistic fitness goals into 2021. It may be on the resolution list for many as we get set to launch into the new year, but where do you even start? And what about setting a goal you can actually attain? With some guidance, we're joined by Sandra Buchert, owner-operator of One-on-One Personal Fitness Instruction. Good morning to you, Sandra. Good morning, Andrew. Thank you for taking the time with us. This is this is your business. And I know if it's not number one, I think back in the day when people used to smoke, uh, quitting smoking was number one or number two. Uh, but fitness is certainly up there. So if I decide that, you know, my physical fitness is something I want to focus on on 2021, where's a good starting point? Would you believe me if I said start by getting better sleep? You hear about uh, that a lot, but, you know, it's it's it seems to me like, you know, counterproductive because if you're sleeping, you're not moving. Well, if you're not sleeping, in fact, you're craving more junk food and you lack the willpower to say no. And the research bears that out, Andrew. They found that when people cut back on their sleep and they were dieting, the weight loss from fat dropped by 55 percent. Wow. So not sleeping has a huge impact on metabolism. Okay, so you want to get that metabolism in order. Some of us, if you work shift work, it may be difficult, but if that's one of the goals, I think everybody would sign up for more sleep, most definitely. So you decide to set these goals for 2021. How about making them realistic, Sandra? Because I might say, okay, you know, I want to be able to bench press 350 pounds by the end of 2021. I want a six pack and I want to be able to run 10K, you know, oh, in, wow. near, in mere minutes. You know, do you think, you think that's some people's issues that they set the bar too high for themselves? Completely. Goals that are just unrealistic. And so maybe just watch out for those infomercials right now that are pushing, you know, 30 pounds lost over the next month when we know that a pound to two per week is realistic. So we we know what's realistic on on the charts. Is this something that if I want to embark on something other than maybe just walking around the block that I I should uh, talk to my doctor before I start? Great. You absolutely want to talk to your doctor. And if you are working with a trainer or a fitness professional, take part in an appraisal that'll give you a baseline of exactly where you're starting. And I love appraisals, Andrew, because down the line, you can look back and see the progress that you made. It's black and white. The appraisal, that's huge. So that would be one way to measure personal success. Uh, What are some of the other ways? Because I think that the almighty scale uh, seems to be ruling the roost. Everybody wants to just hop on that scale, for example. What are other areas that we can uh, have some measurable, um, you know, I, I guess, tangible things to say, okay, this is how far I've gone? Oh, for sure. My favorite is using your clothing. Your clothing knows you. And so size uh, or measurements is a great indication of your progress. 
Whereas hopping on and off the scale doesn't truly give you an indication because if you've gone out for a salty Chinese food meal or had popcorn watching movies the night before, you could be up a couple pounds, three pounds. And if you don't know that these fluctuations happen with your sodium intake or even stress for that matter, you're going to get discouraged. So put aside the scale and perhaps look at your measurements, look at your strength, look at your sleep, how you feel. Those are some non-scale oriented means of measuring progress. Okay, so yeah, that's that, that is something worth noting because yeah, I've I, I've been known to hit the popcorn with that extra <laughs> salt on it. Uh, make me feel better about myself. Um, let's talk about the fact that uh, perhaps years ago this was one of your you know resolutions, but you may have been in your twenties or maybe in your thirties or even your forties. Um, our age and our fitness goals they change too, don't they? They absolutely do. And you know, coming through something like the pandemic, I'm going to say when you're setting these goals to have some compassion for yourself and what you've been through over the last few months. And yes, with age, metabolism does slow, but it doesn't mean that you can't make progress. You just have to go more slow, steady, and be consistent. What about, and I know that, uh, you know, diet is super duper important. That's something that I'm sure you focus on with your clients. In fact, one time you and I met and I was having um some of those ramen noodles for breakfast uh, at my desk at work, and you gave me a hard time. Mr. Noodles, I think it was. Um, but nevertheless, um, the, 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 the diet is huge. How do we switch if we were, uh, you know, and, and me particularly, say, raise my left hand and say, I'm guilty as charged here, don't have the greatest diet, but I, I can't flip to salads 24 hours a day. And I, I knew a friend once who said, I'm going to lose uh, 20 pounds in the next month and eat a salad every day for lunch and for dinner. And he never wanted to see another salad again. And once he started eating his regular diet, he uh, fell off the wagon big time. So, Absolutely. so is it a, really an incorporation? Yeah, and Andrew, I'm going to suggest uh, something like my Fitness Pal. One of those apps that you can use where you put in what you're consuming. And what I love about those apps is they can graph it. They can show you how much protein did you have, how much carbohydrate did you have, how much fat did you have. You can see whether for your gender, activity, uh, age, you can see whether you're hitting those markers or not. And it can help you to clean up some of that eating habits cleanup is is the key right not just a 360 turn uh, 180 turn rather uh, immediately yeah a balance a balance actually a balance. a balance now the other thing is yes indeed uh, we're talking about resolutions as as we do every time this year but this year is way different and i know that a lot of people would be on uh, perhaps january 2nd i know the first is a holiday and heading to the gym not possible this time but you yes. really you don't you don't have to wait for the gym to reopen to get things started do you No, you don't. Uh, In fact, we pivoted online with the pandemic and we've been working remotely with our clients, but there's lots of online training that you can do um, at home. Simple things like push-ups or squats or planking, hitting the mat and doing some core work. Google is a, uh, a wealth of information now. So get on there and see for what you have at home what is possible. And uh, before I let you go, I want to, uh, you know, clear something up here. And that is, I think a lot of people out there, when they hear the term personal trainer, they think, well, I'm not training for a, an Iron Man, And, uh, you know, I don't need that six pack. Some people might actually be afraid of the idea of a personal trainer because they might think it's, it's too, you know, high end for them. 
I agree that that perception can be there. But if anything, what we find is people realize the education is invaluable. We're shocked as to how many people come in to show us what they've been doing at home. And it is completely incorrect. They have knee issues, back issues, uh, hip issues. And it's because their technique is poor. So even if you invest in a few sessions with a trainer so that the program you're doing is tailored to you Mm -hmm. and you know correctly what to do, it aids your progress in ways that are immeasurable. Good stuff. Good stuff. Talk to the pros. They have the knowledge. We appreciate your time and uh, Happy New Year to you, Sandra. Oh, Happy New Year, Andrew. Take care. You too. That is Sandra Buchert, owner-operator of One-on-One Personal Fitness Instruction. Online at oneononefitness.ca, Facebook, one-on-one YYC, and Instagram, one-on-one personal fitness.